0: or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to
1: 1996. Welcome back. Um, We usually go around and say our names um, here in the room, and... Online as well. Uh, I'm George. I'm Mark. Alex. Luis. My name is Henry.
2: Jerry. George. Dave.
0: Risha. Jerry. Matthew. Matthew. Kevin. Bob. Lee. Brian. Shane. My
1: name is Cass.
3: Dad. Hi, Richard. Bill.
1: I'm Sam. Jen? What's that? John again. Where is <laughs> Marcus. Marcus? I can, the ones I can see online are Jack, um Bob, Steve, Greg, and Marvin. Welcome. Um our speaker today comes to us via Zoom and um it's uh Trip Well uh Wheel. Trip wheel. Trip Wild wheel. Welcome, Trip. Welcome, Trip. Trip has been practicing in the Theravadan tradition since 2004. He's a graduate of Spirit Rocks community, Dharma leader, and dedicated practitioner programs. And Trip serves on the board of the San Francisco Insight, where he also leads sitting groups and teaches meditation classes. He's a psychotherapist in private practice in San Francisco and a former attorney. Welcome, Trip. Thank
2: you. Thank you very much, George, and thank you all. Um, it's great to be with you. Uh, I, I wish I was there in person and uh, uh, sorry about that. I, uh, I'm just coming off a meditation retreat and I had forgotten that being there in person was even an option until I was reminded uh just a couple of days ago and I was already committed to not be in San Francisco this morning. So uh it's great to be with you all. And I, I'm it also makes me really appreciate uh this technology and how it's allowed us to share the Dharma in this way. And um I appreciate you allowing me to be here this way and also appreciate the people who have uh, who work so hard to make this possible from a technological and uh, logistical point of view. So thank you, everyone. And um, great to be with all of you who are also online. So, yeah, as I mentioned, I, I am just coming off a retreat. Uh, and so uh, what I'm going to say today is informed by some recent experiences. Uh this was an unusual retreat for me. It, it was silent, uh, but it was not a Buddhist retreat. It was taught in the diamond approach, um, which is a, a different, uh, similar, but different tradition um, taught actually by one of my main Buddhist teachers, Eugene Cash, who I think a lot of you probably know. Um, and, uh, uh, some teachers in the diamond approach Eugene a prime example are also buddhist teachers um i'm i'm curious and, and no one needs to raise their hand but i'm curious if if people uh would be would like to share that, that they are either uh, a, any other diamond approach students in in our group yeah great thank you um so you all might know more about this than i do in a way cuz while i've uh, been uh, learning about the diamond approach, um, for a while from a teacher. Um, uh, some people are more steeped in it than I am. Um, and I'm also curious if anyone would, it, again, you're welcome to raise your hand or not, but I'm curious to know if there are folks who have never heard of diamond approach might inform how I, okay. Yeah. Good to know. Thank you. So, um, I do want to say a little bit about it then just to set a, a bit of a framework. Um, The the diamond approach has many understandings that are similar to Buddhism um, or um, uh, informed by or along with Buddhism. Um, But a a big contribution uh, of the diamond approach uh, is the incorporation of contemporary psychology uh, into an understanding of what causes suffering and what gets in the way of freedom for us as individuals. The teachings focus on some essential qualities of or aspects of our nature, including love, compassion, will, peace, strength, joy, and clarity. And I'm just going to read something I'm quoting from the website. So it focuses on these, these aspects or qualities, how these natural qualities become obscured and how they can open and emerge into our lives. Recognizing and integrating our inner qualities is understood as an organic maturation toward fruition of our humanity and awakening of the transcendent, a process of both liberation and endless discovery and development. So you might hear in that an an emphasis or a focus on coming into contact with our essential equalities, reclaiming them, perhaps, uh, as the antidote for the ways that they have become obscured. Um, And in Buddhist terms, we might simply think of that as ignorance, um, that we are working with ignorance as it has developed within us, as it exists within us, ignorance of who and what we are. Uh, but this is with a a psychologically informed understanding and exploration of how our own unique version of ignorance plays out in our day to day lives and relationships. So it's a, um, feels to me like a very uh, similar exploration, but one with a slightly different emphasis on the psychology and the day to day Relationships in the way that are, um, that we each are uniquely sort of put together and how we, we each uniquely awaken. So from the perspective of the diamond approach and something that was certainly coming up a lot on this retreat, one of the main obscuring functions In the human psyche, one of the main things that gets in the way of awakening that they speak of is what they speak of as the superego. So again, I mentioned that this is informed by um, relatively recent developments in psychology. Um, So you'll recognize the superego, sure, is a Freudian concept. Um, And I also want to speak today about what I see as the superego's analog or at least an analog in buddhism which is the the concept of mara mara being the archetype of the 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 uh, personification of the the forces that challenge us um uh, that that actually work against us uh coming into contact with who and what we really are the forces that challenge the Buddha at every step. We'll explore that a little bit too. So just a little bit more about the superego. Um, as I said, it's a Freudian concept. Uh, in, in Freud's understanding, of course, the, the, the personality or the psyche is made up of three um, main sort of uh, building blocks. There's the id, which is those instinctual drives uh toward um having pleasant experiences avoiding unpleasant experiences that's uh, the ple- the uh, pleasure principle thought of um, so uh, we might think of that from the buddhist perspective as uh the id is is the um the kind of home of, of clinging or craving the causes of suffering There's the ego, which is the, um, the, the, uh, more sort of realistic or practical, uh, side. It's like the, the part that understands that there are, uh, there are, we have needs that we want to have satisfied and there are social constructs or reasons that, that things that will get in the way and, um, practical considerations, other people's needs, other people's ideas. Uh, and we are, um, and we have to work with those skillfully. And then there's this idea of the superego. Um, and this is what we're, we're focusing on a bit today. The idea of the, the, the one that is, um, looking at it all and forming judgments about ourselves. Um, you could call it perhaps the, uh, the inner critic. Um, but the way that, that, uh, Freud thought of it is the, the ego, um, is the, brings in the rules and prescriptions that we inherited and internalized from early caregivers. Um, it's the shoulds. You should do this. You shouldn't do that. The, the internalized prescriptions. And this is where it can get really painful. Um, it, it introduces the idea that the way to meet our needs Is to bring ourselves, to turn ourselves, or bring ourselves into alignment with an an essentially external idea of what is acceptable. Fill in the blank: what's acceptable behavior or thoughts or emotions. And it brings in this other very pernicious idea that if our needs aren't getting met, it's our fault. It's because we haven't done things right as opposed to an understanding that it's in the course of experience as a human, that there will be things that we want or need that won't happen for us. And it's not personal. So this is the inner critic, the shamer, the blamer, the doubter, the one who says you're not who you're supposed to be. But take a moment. Can you imagine anything more internally, mentally painful, than that thought. You are X, one way, and you are meant to be non-X, the opposite. Or maybe for many of us that doesn't require a lot of imagination at all. I think about what it's like for so many of us coming to understand ourselves as sexual and gender minority. That essential logic you are, I am, fill in the blank, and I am meant to be not that, was part of the equation. I think if we're lucky, we maybe managed to at least escape the internalization of that message. Uh, that would be, I think, the best possible outcome, but it's still out there for sure. And if we didn't escape that Internalization, maybe we've managed to heal the inner, the internalization, the injury of it. So try on just for size, the healed version. However you identify, whatever that might be, think I am X and I am meant to be X. Any encounter with a belief like that is practice. You can recognize or see or feel the freedom if that feels true to you. Or you can recognize or see or feel the constriction if somehow that didn't ring true. The idea that you are and you are meant to be if somehow that doesn't feel accurate or land fully. And you can also notice if the superego is coming in with its message, which might be something like, well, you should have felt this, or there's something wrong if you didn't feel that. And then for a moment, We'll add another experiment. Try letting go of the identity completely to the idea that any fact or characteristic or even combination of all the facts and characteristics of our existence captures who and what we are. Both are true, right? This is who I am, and this is not all of who I am. And we live in that paradox of ourselves, that who we are isn't all of who we are. You can hear maybe the difference in the emphasis in my words, but I'll say it again. Who we are isn't all of who we are. And the point that I'm trying to make is that when we say uh, all of who we are, We're focusing in some way on the qualities or the nouns or the adjectives, the things that we take to be ourselves. And when we say it isn't all of who we are, we're bringing in the emphasis on the verb are the being, the mysterious parts that can't be captured in words, the essence of being. And this is what the superego is trying to keep us from connect, connecting to. Hamid Ali, who's the leader of the diamond approach has this to say about the superego. The superego is the inner coercive agency that stands against the expansion of awareness and inner development, regardless of how mild or reasonable it becomes. So that's the basic function of the superego. It's standing actually in the way of us understanding ourselves and our true nature, who we truly are. And this was the Buddha's experience of Mara. Mara was the force standing in the way of the Buddha knowing who and what he truly was. He had his own experience of these shoulds um, coming into his mind. So Mara in the, in the Buddhist understanding is this, this force. It's almost, I always think of Mara as being like the devil in a way, you know, it's like the one that sits on the shoulder and says, Oh sure. You can have that, you know, the tempter do that. Sure. It's fine. Go for it. Or the one who, sits on the shoulder and says, you don't get to have that. You're not allowed. And either way, what Mara is doing is making sure that it's all about you, all about me. It's all, you know, fixated on me, uh, creating a world where everything is personal, and it's all about deserving or not deserving. Um, And the Buddha fought with Mara all the way to his awakening and encountered Mara even afterwards. Mara is the one who tried to keep him, who tries to keep us in conventional suffering, in samsara, in this endless cycle of doing battle with reality as it actually is. Hmm. So how did the Buddha beat Mara, this one trying to lure him away constantly, Simply by seeing, by seeing Mara in all his manifestations. Because the problem isn't the voice or the message. It's our identification with the message. It's not that we might have the thought, uh, you know, you did something wrong or you, you, you with, with a kind of, um, judgment in it, um, or, um, You're a bad person, or whatever it might be. It's that we identify with it. That's the problem. And this identification is something that we can feel, we can really know. It's not just something to recognize intellectually. It's something that that we can know inside. I've been exploring this this identification a lot lately, um, and it came up a lot for me on this retreat, and what I saw for myself is that there's a kind of way that that everything freezes in my mind, in my heart, in my body when I'm identified with the superego. Uh, it's like that all my um, my capacities are just um, uh, seized up, um, The mind, I don't, I, I, I'm not seeing things clearly. The body is, is tense and tight. The heart is closed. And again, the invitation is to explore for yourself. How do you recognize when the, the superego or when this internal judge or critic is, has a hold on you? Not just is speaking, but has a hold, has grabbed you. This is the way to beat the superego, to see it and not believe it. You know the old saying, you have to see it to believe it. With Mara, you have to see it to not believe it.
1: Okay.
2: So here's an example from the suttas, a great example from the Buddha's life, um, and one that comes after his awakening, which is interesting. Mara didn't stop just because the Buddha was awakened. Um, Mara keeps coming. <laughs> but you'll hear that and see that um, it kind of doesn't matter. So this is the Sakalika Sutta, the stone sliver. And just a bit of background is that the Buddha, at this point in his life, had actually survived an assassination attempt. His uh, cousin, David Devadatta, Um, who was constantly trying to undermine the Buddha, had um, uh, thrown this huge boulder down like a cliff at the Buddha. And the boulder didn't hit him, but it did shatter. And a shard from the boulder hit the Buddha's foot and stabbed him. And the Buddha is recovering from the injury at this point. I've heard that on one occasion the Blessed One was staying near Rajagaha at the Maracachi Deer Reserve. Now, at that time his foot had been pierced by a stone sliver. Excruciating were the bodily feelings that developed within him, painful, fierce, sharp, racking, repellent, disagreeable. But he endured them mindful, alert, and unperturbed. Having had his outer robe folded in four and laid out, he lay down on his right side in the lion's posture, with one foot placed on top of the other, mindful and alert. Then Mara, the evil one, went to the blessed one and recited this verse. In his presence. Are you lying there in a stupor or drunk on poetry? Are your goals so very few? All alone in a secluded lodging, what is this dreamer, this sleepy face? Samara comes to the injured Buddha who's nursing a wound and says basically, what are you, lazy? The Buddha's response I lie here not in a stupor, nor drunk on poetry. My goal attained, I am sorrow-free. All alone, in a secluded lodging, I lie down with sympathy for all beings. Even those pierced in the chest with an arrow, their hearts rapidly, rapidly beating. Even they with their arrows are able to sleep. So why shouldn't I, with my arrow... Removed. I am not awake with worry, nor afraid to sleep. Days and nights don't oppress me. I see no threat of decline in any world at all. That's why I sleep with sympathy for all beings. Van Mara, the evil one, sad and dejected at realizing, the blessed one knows me, the one well gone knows me, Vanished right there. I love that that end um, aspect of all the the Buddha's encounters with Mara. It's like it's the mic drop moment. It's just like
3: Mm.
2: Mara is gone. But again, let's notice that Mara also had come. Long after the Buddha had awakened. And, and what this demonstrates is that Mara isn't necessarily a problem. Um, and in fact, what Mara does here is gives the Buddha an opportunity to reconnect to what he knows, to reaffirm what he knows. And this is the same invitation and opportunity for us to, uh, use Mara to Find out, what do we know for ourselves to be true? I would say that finding out the answer to those questions, to that question, is the essence of practice. It doesn't mean that we find that, you know, we don't make mistakes or we haven't or at times don't act unskillfully. It doesn't mean that doesn't mean that we don't cause harm to ourselves and others. But it does mean that we recognize that Mara isn't here to help us understand with compassion how to be free from suffering. He's there to keep us in it. So our encounters with Mara and with the superego make us stronger stronger if we can truly bring ourselves to them, ourselves as we are to them, or more forcefully even, the encounters demand that we bring all of ourselves to them. It's said that there are two kinds of suffering. There's suffering that leads to more suffering, and there's suffering that leads to the end of suffering. And our job, through our practice, is to take suffering that we experience and use it or understand it in a way that leads to the end of suffering. And I think we could say something very similar about Mara. There are two kinds of encounters with Mara. There are the encounters that lead to more self-judgment, more pain, and there are encounters that lead to greater clarity about ourselves, about reality, So another encounter with Mara that the Buddha had on the night of his awakening, it said the Buddha was visited by Mara uh, at a very critical moment, and not just Mara, but armies of Mara, <laughs> armies of his tempts and his taunts, and the Buddha kept seeing through them, I see you Mara, I see you Mara, I see you Mara, until the final assault when Mara told the Buddha one more time that he was unworthy of awakening, that Mara himself should be sitting under the Bodhi tree, not the Buddha. And, and moreover, the Mara challenged the Buddha. The Mara said, I have witnesses who will vouch for me. Who challenged the Buddha will vouch for you? And this is such a pivotal moment in the Buddha's awakening. This is the moment when he takes his hand and he reaches to the ground and he says, Mother Earth will vouch for me. Touches the Earth. And it's another one of those explosive moments where it all blows up. It's said that there are huge earthquakes all over the Earth at that moment. And... Mara slithered away again and the Buddha went on to awaken that night through practice. There are, I think, a lot of interpretations of people, different understandings of the Buddha's act in touching the earth, what it means or symbolizes. But what's resonating for me now is the idea that he's saying, I'm here. I am, I am part of existence. I am not. Apart from existence. I've, I've looked. I've done the work. I know myself from the inside out, not from the outside in. Having let go of those superego messages. Not, not to say that, that we are perfect or that we've done everything right, but that we know what's right and wrong from the inside out, not the outside in done with thinking that anything should be different
0: or must be different from how it actually is in any moment done with that kind
2: of contention with reality as it is. I feel like for me being queer has given me the, the imperative really to look at who I am from the inside out. Um, it's been a, tr- a true gift in that sense. Like, it's not the 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 version from outside has always been painful, and so the the opportunity from the beginning, though I haven't always taken it, <laughs> has been to know from the inside out. And what we can see, I believe, is that we don't need rules um, from outside or even inside. It's not rules that we need. We just need understanding, true, true understanding. Uh, I'm going to read a little bit more from that earlier quote from Hamid Ali. I already read the part where he says the superego is the inner coercive agency that stands against the expansion of awareness and inner development regardless of how mild or reasonable it becomes. And he goes on, It is a substitute, and a cruel one, a cruel one, for direct perception and knowledge. Inner development requires that in time there be no internal coercive agencies. There will be instead inner regulation based on objective perception, understanding, and love. I find that to be so inspiring, that what we're going for is not rules from within or without for how to be in any given moment. What we're going for is the capacity to discern for ourselves, to regulate ourselves based on objective percep- perception, understanding, and love. Or you could say from the Buddhist perspective, the, the, the two arms of wisdom and compassion. So we can start there with at least an intellectual or even intuitive understanding. The superego, the, the internal rules, are not our friend. And then we can look out for it, watch out for it, catch on to it, and let it know we're on to it. Mara, I see you. This came up a lot for me on this retreat, as it often does. Um, sitting in silence and... Um, at, at times, really feeling a lot of, um, regret, having memories of things that had happened, um, things that had happened with me and other people, uh, relationships that weren't as I wanted them to be, um, some that were ruptured beyond repair, uh, and, and feeling the, um, the shame, the self-reproach, um at times over and over remembering something, you know, how could I have been so stupid? What was I thinking? What's wrong with me? That kind of stuff. And over time, because it kept it, 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 this kind of stuff can come up anytime, but it really kept coming up over and over. And I really was working with it. It's like really trying to understand. I stayed with different people in my mind. And what I found was that over time, I, I found some peace. Um, and the peace was in the form of, of like recognizing, yeah, whatever it was that happened, it did happen. And I can't fix that. Uh, I can't, I can't fix that. And it may always be difficult. With that person, or there may not be a relationship with that person, but I can control what I do going forward. And I saw at a kind of larger level that that the internalization of the superego was really saying to me, you don't deserve peace. You don't deserve it because of what you've done. These things, whatever that roll around in the mind. Um, no, you don't get peace. And to to over time be able to come back and say, actually, I can find peace. Um, it doesn't mean that those things have to have not happened. They did. It did happen. No? I have made mistakes. Fill in the blank. So... This, I think, is the message to look out for, whatever it is in your own experience that says, you don't get to be free. This isn't for you. In any moment. Because as the Buddha saw as he touched the earth, it's a lie. It's not true. It's a trap. And our our work is to find and come into contact with who and what we really are. And that understanding is our entitlement to awaken, not, not some external ideal that we live up to or satisfy, but knowing from the inside out, that's the golden ticket. And we have our own opportunity over and over through our encounters with Mara, through our encounters with the superego to find out who are we? What's here? What is this? And from this perspective, awakening isn't a reward, it's a result. It's a result of the inquiry, of the, the practice. So I'm going to end with a poem, really my favorite Buddhist poem, by Izumi Shikibu, a Buddhist practitioner, a woman living in Japan about a thousand years ago. And this is her poem after her awakening. It's called Watching the Moon. Watching the moon at midnight, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. Again, we get that bit of a kind of mic drop moment, no part left out. So the wish that we can have is that we can all know ourselves completely, who and what we are, Really from the inside out, bringing in all the parts that are conditioning, that our internalization of superego messages would leave out. So with that wish, I'll end and thank you for your attention and presence.
1: Thank you, Truth. Do we have announcements? Questions. We have questions. <laughs> we have time for questions.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> How much time do we have for questions? About ten minutes. About ten minutes. Okay. Anybody have any questions for Trip Clark? Um, hey, Trip. Um, I'm a uh, Clark freshman.
4: I uh, uh, also was trained like as a lawyer years ago and uh, now I'm doing at DC uh, Law. amongst so other things, meditation and. Um, I was so struck by the poem because I was thinking about internal family systems while you we were speaking. And that's a, that's like a, you know, key part of it is no, no part left out. And the idea that a thousand years ago, someone said that is kind of interesting. And, um, struck me as you're talking about working with the superego that it's, um, what you're describing in, in these, these sutras is the kind of fierce, fierce self-compassion of speaking back to in, in a somewhat forceful and harsh way tomorrow. Um, and then there are other sutras where the Buddha is sent to, uh, after his awakening, invite Mara in for tea. (laughs) I just, I find that interesting. I'm just wondering like how you relate to that idea of inviting Mara in for tea. Like what would that, in your practice, what does that look like? Or like not, um, not leaving out Mara, not leaving out superego,
2: like pushing it away.
4: Um,
2: Right. That's a great question. Um, Can I invite you to say like, also, how is it for you like what do, how do you how do you think about that?
4: Oh uh, I can't say how I think about that so um I think that uh, I uh, the way that I've sometimes was taught about how to work with the superego or the inner critic uh going all the way back I forget what's the diamond approach I've been in the deep the dedicated practitioners program you' get a follow-on group. And it was Soul Without Shame, that's the book, Soul Without Shame. So we did certain practices there. And one of them was to try to, like the internal family systems, you know, um, find out where this part comes from, like what role does it come from? Uh, and to try to see, like, well, what is it trying to do? So, like for me, I really related as you're speaking to this, this harsh part of me that sometimes says, um, often says, uh, "What's wrong? What's wrong with you that you can't get anything done? What's wrong with you that you can't get anything done?" And um, so, like the harsh way of responding to that is to say, "Well, that's not really true. Like, I've done all of these. I've done all of these things. I went to my yoga class today. I was nice to my sister, and I was really appreciative of salespersons. That's not really true." Um and then I guess it's very hard for me to do this other approach, which is to say, um, I wonder where this part is coming from. Oh, I see. This part wants to make sure that I'm safe and is afraid that I'm leaving something unattended. So it's not an evil part, it's just kind of out of balance. And so I can sort of invite it in fatigue in that sense, be like, Oh, I get what you're trying to do. You're trying to check in with me about like if I left something out, am I is there some imbalance in my life? Am I not, <laughs> you know, for example, <laughs> have I not um looked at my finances lately? Maybe that's why I haven't done anything about And just reminding me to do that. Oh, that's kinda of nice. Um I, I guess that's helpful. Uh that would be
2: like inviting more infantile for me. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. That's I appreciate that and I get what you're saying. And 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 then I'm also struck that that in in both versions it is the the what we're really what you're really talking about is seeing through it. In other words, like there is something that it, that it might be bringing that's going to be helpful, but it's not helpful.
4: <laughs> <laughs> right. 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 But right. not in that way of saying what's wrong with you that you, oh, can't, you can can't like that's so harsh. It's just um just like freezing, right? It's so, so harsh, like such a bad parent that like you're just frozen and you can't really grow. Right. Right.
2: right. So we may invite my, Mara in for tea, but we're not going to say like, hey, why don't you move on in or you know, you're cute. Come on. <laughs> no, you know, like, we're not. We're not going to like, you know, really uh, give ourselves to Mara. But we may Find that, that at times I think it takes a certain amount of resolve and, it, it, not resolve, but a certain kind of, um, uh, moment of resources, you know, inner resources to do that. And sometimes I think it is maybe better. I think the, the book you mentioned, Soul Without Shame, is such a great one because it explores so many different options. For meeting the the super ego or the internal critic, and sometimes it's like, no, stay away. I can't handle you right now. I don't want anything to do with you. What are you talking about? So it's it, and then sometimes it is inviting in, like, what are you what are you trying to say? I can I can hear you, even if I'm not going to agree. So that would be my answer.
4: Yeah, that's great. I, I wanted I, as you were saying that and talking about the soul of that I recently did this course on. um Mindful self compassion for shame that uh, Chris Germer first developed, and it's taught by actually by a gang named David, um, I can't remember his name, uh, here in the city. And it was really great. It was like another way of working with, in a sense, the same, the similar territory, the inner hmm Yeah. Thank
1: you. Thank you. Anyone else? Anyone online?
3: Steve. Steve? Yes. Hi, I just want to say two things. Thank you so much for today's talk. Uh, it was, uh, very well done and I took a lot of notes and I really appreciate, uh, your efforts. Um, really resonated with me. And also uh, to continue what that last, um, person commented on, I think that, that that's actually a good strategy as well. You know, you, you see Mara and you can say, don't go, you know, go away. Don't bother me. But in a way that could be kind of just like denying and just pushing it down. But if you stay, step back and just say, you know what? I see you Mara. And you know what? I'm going to look at this, at what you're trying to do to me in a different perspective. And I'm going to take what you're, what you're trying to do to me in a positive perspective and say, you know what? Maybe, maybe there's, this is a lesson that's something else I can do to augment my day or you know to to improve upon, but not in a negative way, not to beat myself up, but just as a way to learn and go forward. So I can see benefit in that.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, thank you for that. It's it's true. Um it's it's uh it can be a um a a helpful message delivered in not such a helpful way, um, and we can we can develop the capacity to um, work with both parts of that. Thank you,
0: Tom. Hi Trip, thank you so much for a really rich talk. Um, I can't wait to go back through it again. Um, you know that first exercise you had us do just imagining to ourselves, okay, I am X, and I am meant to be X, felt so settling. So such relief came with it. But then it occurred to me, you know, not everybody might feel that way, and um, there might be this immediate resistance. And my question is, how do we distinguish between what is genuine for us, and between that and maybe those voices and critical voices that were instilled in us when we were six years old or, you know, through years of, you know, somebody close to us <clears throat> giving us negative messages, um, how do we find what's true? You know, like what do we have to go through, what exercises or what, uh lens can we see through, can we look through to distinguish whether that immediate feeling is accurate or not? Or is the feeling just enough? You just have to trust it. I don't know. What do you think? I think it's a beautiful question. I I think it's it's a question for a lifetime
2: in a way. Uh because of course there is no, you know, like owner's manual for being a human and, you know, nothing that says like, oh well when this light comes on, this is what it means.
4: Yeah.
2: <laughs> but what you're also pointing to is that there is that we learn to trust the felt sense, you know, it's like the, I, I personally, when I feel that what I was hearing you describe in terms of the experience in your body, I trust that when I feel that kind of a thing. Um, and what I also do is kind of borrowing on, on what we've um the other questions and comments so far that what I also do is if I don't, if I'm feeling constricted, I don't necessarily take that to mean, well, what I'm hearing is like wrong. I mean, it might be true, but it might not, there might be something else for me to explore in that. Um, but I will say that when the, when those feelings of peace are present, I trust them uh, personally, (laughs)
1: Yeah. Thank you. Anyone else? Should we read the poem again, that closing poem, I could or say the poet's name? Oh sure. Sure.
2: Watching the moon. Watching the moon. Watching the moon at midnight. Solitary. Mid sky. I knew myself completely. No part left out. And I would just like to say, too, that I appreciated the comment about, uh, you know, it's amazing that that was written a thousand years ago um, by a practitioner. Like it, That's one of the things I just love so much about the Dharma is how uh, clearly people have been wrestling with the same stuff that we're wrestling with for millennia and and this. These teachings have served them well. Mm-hmm. And we stand on their shoulders.
1: Mm-hmm. Thanks. Thank you. We're out of time. Thank you very much, Tripp. Um, announcements? Yes, uh, PDF is
2: having the five-year retreat by preparing until 17 to 21st and the registration will be opening soon. It'll go out to, on the Google group. So
1: mark the dates if you're interested in and contact me and Jerry if you have any uh, questions that'll be, I don't make be, to to be going out this weekend. Thank you, Richard. Anyone else? Over here. Jerry. Hey. Hi, Jerry.
3: Please stay and enjoy the company of the Santa. There are refreshments of hot water and tea. If you use a cup, please place it in the sink and I'll take care of it. And also, I'll be going
2: around to the dining bowl uh, to accept contributions that cover our expenses. Your generosity is appreciated. Donations in the range of $10 to $20 help the Saga meet its expenses. These include honorarium for our speakers,
1: like trip, rent for this beautiful center, a quarterly newsletter, uh, mailed mostly to people in prison, and also to uh, help... He paid expenses for the retreat. There's
2: a new sign-up sheet in the Prudenza. If you wish to be included and receive our Saga
3: membership, please sign up. And at 1230, people gather at the door to go to lunch. Everyone is welcome.
1: Thank you, Jerry. Anyone else? Uh, for those in the room, I just discovered there's a loss in town. I found a bug that I left here a year ago. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Grisha. Um, I guess we can gather together in the circle for the dedication of Mira. Trick, would you like to do that or should I uh, read ours? Uh, We're welcome to read ours. Okay. Thank you, Chip. Thank you. By the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness, which is without sorrow and they all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in the equality of all the lives.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.